0: Well, my name is Och, and uh, it's pronounced like Scotch for those who do not know me yet. And uh, so Larmy and I, so Larmy is my wife, we've been in this, uh, we've been members of this church for about almost five years now, and uh, it's a great honor for me to be here with you uh, this morning. I'm really glad that, uh, that I was able to attend the Sundays, uh, Sunday school this morning regarding the fear of men so that I don't fear you, and I would fear God. And uh, be joyful as I share the word of God with you. Now, we're originally from the Philippines. We've been in the States for about 12 years now. Uh, we lived in, in Maryland for, for five years and now in Phoenix about seven years and we love it here. And uh, since I'm a second language speaker, I'm going to do my best to enunciate well so that you can follow along the message, okay? All right, so, but we, before, before we begin, let us, let uh, let us Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and uh, we pray that you calm our hearts and our minds and remove distractions from us, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear you, Lord God. And this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord and our King. Amen. All right. Now, the text that we will unpack this morning is found in the book of Acts. It's going to be in chapter 17, 16 to 34. And uh, the title of our message is, The Unknown God Makes Himself Known. And for those who like to take down notes, of course, the big idea of the message is God reveals himself to the ignorant through the risen Christ. Now, eight years ago, our old wagon was rear-ended. And uh, the cost of repair was about the same uh, value of the car. And so the insurance company declared it as a total loss. But it was still salvageable, and so we, we just you know we kept the car. We received the insurance money, and then we had our friend help us out in fixing it. So he's a he's a he's a, he's a mechanic. But the car will be in the shop for about a few weeks, maybe about a month. And so uh, we uh, decided to rent a car. But actually, you know what? I I, I said let's not rent a car. You know, let's uh, why don't we buy an uh, an eight hundred dollar you know used Nissan Sentra that I found on Craigslist. We will use it for the time being, I'm going to spruce it up, I'm going to fix it up, try to flip it, so that way we can have, uh, you know, we can sell it for a profit. And we're we not going to be renting a car, we're going to be investing, right? And so I, I uh, uh, then that's exactly what we did. We got the Sentra, we used it for a few weeks, and, and I did some repairs on it here and there. Now, the paint is quite terrible, it was just peeling everywhere. And so I decided to kind of like refresh the paint. But we were living in an in a, uh, apartment complex. And so I couldn't just spray paint the car in public. And so uh, I researched online and, uh, and found this solution for the problem. And as you all know, that everything online is true and good. And so I found this guy who was, who was uh, painting his car. Uh, actually, he was roll painting the car. And I thought it was a brilliant idea. And I told this to, to my wife, Larmy, and she said, that was a brilliant idea, and uh, you are a wise man. And uh, she didn't say that. But, uh, and so I bought the, the house paint. And so I started rolling, roll painting the hood and, and the front bumper, but it didn't look right. So I just kept on painting more and tried to fix it, right? And I kept painting and paint the whole body. And, and I... I was trying to make it better, right? But actually, it became worse and worse as I went along. And so the end product was the worst-looking car on the road. Now, um, you see, this is, um, well, I was ignorant in the art of painting cars, as well you can see, right? I was ignorant. I did not know much about it. And in my stubbornness, I just kept on painting, thinking I was actually making it better, but I was making it worse. The ancient Athenians were kind of like me in their ignorance. They were ignorant of God. They kept on crafting idols in the hope that these gods would somehow meet their needs, make their lives better, satisfy their deepest longings. They were only making it worse for their souls. They were becoming more miserable and empty, and that's why they're creating more gods to worship. They were treasuring up the wrath of God, ultimately. So the Athenians were ignorant of God. And the point number one is the ignorant cannot know the unknown God. Now, let me clarify what I mean by the ignorant. Ignorant here is not those who simply are lacking in knowledge. Because the Bible says that all mankind actually know that there is a God. In Romans 1, 18, 20, it says here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, everybody knows that there is a God in heaven, because he revealed himself to them. But they refuse to know him and acknowledge him due to their sinful, rebellious hearts. And I I believe that they deny the existence of God because they just don't want to be held responsible or liable for the sins that they commit against him. They cannot know God because they simply do not want to know God. They cannot because they will not. Now, some of you might be thinking, hold on, Archie. I don't think I agree with that because I think that they were actually looking for God. That's the reason why they created all these idols is because of their pursuit of God. I mean, they even created an idol uh, you know, to the unknown God and that must come for something, right? Now, I, I do get it. I get it because I thought the same thing. But my question is, were they really looking for God? Because you see, I was like them. I was like the ancient Athenians before I became a Christian. And I bet that all the Christians in this room were like them before they became one. Romans 3, verses 10 to 12 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So I thought I was looking for God at one point but I wasn't really looking for God. I was more like looking for a servant with God-like powers, right? What I mean is that as um, I was looking for something or someone to do what I want, however I want it, and whenever I want it. God, I want you to do this for me. I want you to do this for my mom. I want you to give me this woman, give me this car, give me this house, you know. and, and God, whoever you are, if you can hear me, I want you to make my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in my heart. You know, that's basically what my prayer was, because I was just demanding from this God that I I thought I knew. So I was looking for a servant to do what I desire, because underneath it all, I was not really looking for God. I wanted to be my own God. The city of Athens, they had many gods, too. But when you peel back all those layers, all those gods were mere representation of the people's delusion of their own godhood. That is why they were ignorant of the unknown God. They were gods to themselves. But God, the real God, in his mercy, chose to reveal himself in Athens through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Verse 16 says, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, as you know from the previous passage, uh, that Timothy and Silas were supposed to follow Paul to Athens, right? Now, he just, uh, Paul just escaped the, the grasp of the uh, Jews from Thessalonica who was trying to you know, follow him around and trying to cause trouble for him to, to put a stop to the message that Paul was preaching, maybe even end his life. You know? um, now, while, while Paul was waiting for the two brothers he was walking around, he was looking around in the city and he saw that there were many idols, you know, many statues of idols everywhere. There was so much of them. Actually one historian satirically said that during that time it was easier to look for a god than a man. The population in Athens was 10,000 and the statues of idols were 30,000. It was it was ridiculous. It was it was crazy. So Paul saw the rampant idolatry of the people, and it stirred his spirit within him. Now, the original language, uh, the root word is, is basically, it means he was provoked to anger. But notice that his anger did not cause him to lash out at them. Actually, what it did was it caused him to have compassion for the people. It moved him to to desire the the salvation of these people from their idolatry, from from their delusion of godhood, from uh, from the wrath of of God that is to come. So what did Paul do? It says here in in Acts 17, uh, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So here was Paul who barely escaped the grasp of the Jews from Thessalonica, he was supposed to be laying low, right? But no, he wasn't. He was actually there disputing with all the people every day and risking persecution again. Because such was Paul's love for Jesus that he just couldn't stop talking about his Savior. But also, such was God's love for the lost that he couldn't just leave them you know, on, in, in their sin and in their idolatry. He placed Paul in Athens. It was God who placed Paul in Athens because he wanted to reveal himself to these people. And so Paul engaged with them. Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, Epicureanism and Stoicism are two different schools of thought, but basically, uh, we don't have time to unpack them, but uh, they have a very similar goal, and, and that is to attain... A, a state of perfection of being, a greater state of perfection of being, they both do not desire the glory of God at all; they desire the glory of man, the perfection or the betterment of of man in effect, what they 're doing is that they're, make, they're, they're making themselves as gods you know underneath all that idolatry. Now these were some of the people that Paul was you know uh, engaging with, disputing with, trying to persuade so we, you could say that he was, he was getting some traction because these are people that are the most influential people at that time. But some of them also were saying that he was just a babbler. Now, the original word means seed picker, someone who picks up seeds, right? So what it is is basically someone who picks up all kinds of ideas from different places and different times, putting them all together to form some kind of a, a unified idea. Uh, essentially, someone who likes to talk but doesn't really you know, say anything of substance. So different people were responding differently to the preaching of Paul. And none at this point believed him, at least not yet. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27, that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, something was about to happen in the progression of the story. God is astonishingly gracious that even when they were not looking for him, he was looking for them and found them, those whom he chooses to reveal himself to. Isaiah 65 one says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek for me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, the people of Athens did not seek after God, nor ask for him. But they were at least curious about what Paul was trying to say at this point. They wanted to hear more. After all, it's a new teaching. And as, as we heard earlier, all the Athenians and the foreigners there, they basically spent their time in nothing, nothing except hearing or telling something new. So they brought Paul to the Areopagus, Basically, at the Areopagus, it's, it's a council that was in charge or that was in control of the affairs of the city. So what they wanted to do with, with that is they, wanted, uh, they sought for the council to either grant Paul the, uh, the permission to continue on preaching or to silence him. They wanted to know the validity of his preaching, of what he was saying. Now, in verse 22 and 23, it says here, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul made an introduction, he was about to drop some knowledge on these people at this point, but but before he did so, he clarifies that he's not presenting them a new god to add into their collection, right? What he's saying here is that um, he wanted to present to them the God that's always been there from everlasting to everlasting. And he used the unknown God inscription to reveal the God who's always been there, the one true God. And he wanted to reveal, it to, uh, reveal him to the Athenians. And this leads us to point number two, which is the unknown God reveals himself to the ignorant. So, how does he reveal himself? through Paul's preaching. Now, there are five truths that we can extract from Paul's preaching. I'm going to just uh, run through them real quick. Truth number one, God is the self-sufficient creator. Truth number two, God is the sovereign Lord. Truth number three, God is the waiting lover. Truth number four, God is the near sustainer. And truth number five, uh, God is the divine father. We'll, we'll go through them Uh, one by one rather briefly. Let's read verses uh, 24 to 25. This is still Paul speaking to the Areopagus. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives uh, to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul was basically revealing to them that the real God is the opposite of the idols that they were worshiping. They craft these idols, and then they offer food or flowers or whatever they have they want to offer. And so basically, these gods needed to be served, but the real God does not need our service. The real God is the self-sufficient creator. He does not need us to craft him. He was the one who crafted us and created us, Right? He does not need us to make Him temples where He can dwell in. He was the one who created the earth for us to dwell in. He does not need people to serve Him as though He needed help. He is the one who helps us because we are the ones who are in need of help. We are in need of life. We are in need of breath and all things. He is self-sufficient. We are not. He does not need us, but we need Him. And sometimes... We, we fall into this way of thinking, the Athenians' the, uh, way of thinking. We think of God that way, that somehow he needs our service, that he needs us to serve him. Lord, I, I go to church every Sunday, Lord. Uh, I tithe regularly. I do all kinds of good works in your name. And uh, I'm having a difficulty right now. But you owe me you got to save me. you gotta, you got to change my circumstances because I've been serving you all these years. I've been faithful to you. You kind of owe me. Change my circumstances. Save me from this. Now, Christian, let me encourage you with this. Now, God does not need your service nor your money. He does not need you to accomplish his will on earth. However, don't think for a second that your worth is minimized by this truth that your value in the eyes of God is somehow diminished. Because he's not like us who sometimes look at the value of a person uh, in their capability, you know, uh, to contribute to our lives. God values and treasures you not because of you, but because it is in his nature to love. His love is not based on what you have done or what you have accomplished, of how talented you are or how good-looking you are. His love for you is unmerited unearned undeserved he loves you with an unconditional love that's the kind of God that we love and serve now doesn't that free you from whatever burden you have placed on your shoulder God does not need you to serve him but he delights in you and he wants you to participate in what he's doing on this earth if you are a child of God you are serving him not to earn his favor or to fill a need You are serving him because you already have his favor and he delights to share his work with you. Whatever you're going through, God will be there to rescue you, to be with you, but not because he owes you, but because he loves you. Did I hear an amen there? Amen. 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 Not only is he the self-sufficient creator who created every nation from one man, but he also determined when they should live, and where they should live. This brings us to truth number two. The real God is the sovereign Lord. God is sovereign over all things. God orchestrates human race and human history. Verse 26 says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God determined for you to be where you are to live in the 21st century you were born into the family that you were born in in the city that you were born in in the state and in the country where god chose you to be you did not choose where you were supposed to be born right god did that you were born into that he chose your color your language your height your width even the staple food in your culture whether it's potatoes or rice or beans or chicken wings i love wings now, this is the God that we serve. This is the Lord that we have. He is, he is, is in control of everything. God determined all of these for, you, for us, for you. He masterfully orchestrated intentionally everything, all the little details in your life. He knows you by name. He knows the numbers of hair on your head, whether it's two or 20,000, right? He knows you inside and out. You are fearfully and wonderfully made that's how meticulous god's sovereign love for you is for his creation for mankind specifically for for you this is the kind of lord that we have a very a very loving lord but we do have to be reminded though that he is lord and lord means master you see it's either you are the master of your life or god is it's either you're a slave of your own desires or you are a slave of God. There are no other choices here. Now, I know that the word slave is quite controversial word, especially in this nation's history. And as you can see in this social unrest that surrounds us today, the word brings to mind a lot of deeply painful memories. But make no mistake, slavery is a very terrible and horrible thing if your master is not one who is good And righteous and perfect. However, if your master is good and perfect and righteous, it is a joyous thing. Paul Washer said in one of his sermons that the freest man on the face of the earth is the one who makes himself a slave to a perfect master. And there's only one master that is perfect in all of existence, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. And he is the sovereign Lord. And God, in Christ Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of all creation, he allotted periods of time. He set boundaries of our dwelling places so that what? For what purpose? Verse 27 says, so that they or we should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And this brings us to truth number three. The real God is the waiting lover. He is the one true and faithful lover of your soul. Now, in the scripture, God describes himself as a husband multiple times. It's all over scripture. Isaiah 54, 5, it says here, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. Hosea 2.16, it says here, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Now, these words were written to Israel, but these were also written as a foreshadowing of his love for his bride. And who is the bride of Christ? The church, right? Right? The church, people from all nations and tribes and languages, in periods of time, whether, whether it's, it was ancient Athens or, or uh, Manila, Philippines, or Phoenix, Arizona, the church, local and universal, you are the bride of Christ. Your maker, your creator is the lover of your soul, the one who truly loves you. He's the one who always, wait, always waits for us. And we are the one who always Walk away, sadly. But God remains faithful. He waits for you, longs for you to feel your way toward him, that you may find him. And he wants to be found. He wants to be found. And you don't have to journey far to get to him. He is near you. And this brings us to truth number four. The real God is the near sustainer. Now, the last half of verse 27 says, yet he is actually not far from from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now, Paul quoted this from a Greek poet who, who actually wrote this phrase about Zeus, all right? But Paul was essentially saying that this description does not belong to Zeus. This description about God belongs to the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the one who upholds our life, sustains us, empowers us, and helps us move and upholds our very being. Paul was taking all these ideas and, and these descriptions of God in the Athenian culture and applying them to the God of Israel because the God of the Israel, all truth belongs to him and all praises belongs to him. And here Paul is saying that God is not far. He is near. Paul said, In him, we live and move and have our being. Do you know that God is right now, at this moment in time, while you're listening to me, he's actively and closely sustaining our every single breath, every beat of your heart to keep your organs functioning uh, with harmony and our minds and body working together. Every cell, every subatomic particle, God is upholding. He is closely, meticulously working in your life and in my life that we might know him. And sadly, sometimes we neglect him and, and, and forget him, thinking that we can somehow do this life without him, when we can't even take one breath without his upholding power. Hebrews 1, verse 3, talking about Jesus, it says here that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature, God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, as you can see, God did not create the universe and simply left it on its own. No, he created everything and he stayed near. And he closely upholds and sustains all things through Jesus Christ. And, and maybe some of you, just like me, you somehow feel like sometimes you're at the end of your ropes. You feel like you can take you cannot take another step forward. Whatever you're going through is, is quite hard. You feel broken, you feel wounded, and, and you just you feel like there's no way you'll make it through this trial that you're in. But know this truth. Remind yourself of this truth that God has been sustaining you thus far. Look at the history of God, the track record of God in your life, in the past, how He has been faithful in sustaining you, and He's still sustaining you now, and He will sustain you sustain you going forward even to eternal life. Jesus, God, loves his creation. He loves you. He he loves mankind as a father loves his children. And this is truth number five. The real God is the divine father. The last part of verse 28 says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So mankind is the offspring of God, male and female, made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. The Athenians were making gods of silver and and gold and stone Uh, made in their own image, in their own imagination. But God is basically saying here that, no, I am not made in your image or in your imagination. I made you. You You are made in my image and in my likeness. He is the divine father. He is a divine father who yearns for his children to come to him. Even when we turned away from him, in our rebellious ways, and we became ignorant, sinful creatures against God, his love remained steadfast. And he never stopped revealing himself to us. Since the creation of the world, he has been revealing more and more more of himself to man. And finally, he revealed himself fully through his son, the savior of this fractured world. This baby was born unlike any other human being. He lived for the very purpose of dying. For the purpose of dying for those who sinned against the almighty God that he might redeem them from their sins. Back to God. And this child was born of a virgin. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the excruciating death that we, you and I, we deserve. He paid for our sins with his own blood Dying on the cross. And then he rose again. And we who believe in him will have life in him forever. And now where is, where is he at? He ascended to heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of God. What is he doing? He's interceding for you and I. He's praying for us that our faith in him may prevail, may not fail. And who is this person, this savior? You know his name. Jesus, amen. God's final and complete revelation of himself is Jesus Christ. Now, one of our brothers here in Trinity, I don't want to put him on the spot, but I'm, I'm going to just hide his identity under the name Stephen Anderson. <laughs> now, um, Stephen, when we talk, you know, we share our burdens and we try to pray for one another, he would always tell me, you know, don't even sweat it, Och. You know, who do you know? He would ask me that question. Who do you know? It is to remind me that I know Jesus, that God revealed himself to me through Jesus Christ, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the Jesus that I know. Why should I I be discouraged? Why should I sweat it? Why should I be dismayed? Who do I know? Who do you know? The Apostle Paul said he considers all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Now, if you are a Christian, you already know the other side of that coin, right? And that it is that he knows you too. Not just generally, he knows you intimately as his own. You know Jesus and Jesus knows you. Amen? Amen. You see, God has finally revealed himself fully and completely through Jesus. And because of that, point number three, the last and final point, the revealed God commands repentance and belief in his Christ. Verse 30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, what does it mean that God overlooked the times of ignorance? Does that mean that God was simply brushing off the people's sins because they are ignorant anyway? Oh, I I can't blame them for what they don't know. I'll just brush it off. I'm not going to punish them. I don't think so. I don't think that's what it means here. For a period of time, God did not intervene in such a way that he would execute his justice, his complete and perfect justice, against people for their sins with finality. What I mean is that in his long-suffering love, he kept himself from destroying everyone who sinned against him. In an instance, he could have just thrown everybody to hell, and it would have been just for him to do so. But he did not do that because he was unfolding the greatest redemption story creation will ever see. Since the fall of man back in Genesis, God has increasingly revealed more of himself in his plan of redemption, but in his great wisdom, in his great insight, he chose a time in history, which is called the fullness of time, to unfold his plan. And from the fall, all right, from the fall until the time of Christ, that was a time of ignorance, Remember in in Exodus 34, you know, when when Moses was asking for God to reveal to him his glory, to show him his glory, what did God do? Instead of showing him himself in all his glory, he he basically just showed Moses a glimpse of of his back, right? And uh, he spoke and he proclaimed his attributes to Moses to show his glory somehow, describing the kind of God he is. Let me read Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." Now, did you catch that tension there? God was revealing something of himself and something about his mysterious plan here. He said he forgives sin, right? But he said he will, not, he will not, by no means, he will not clear the guilty of sin. So you see that tension there. How can God say that he will forgive sin, but he will also punish sin? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, right? If you punish sin, then that means you did not forgive sin. If you forgive sin, that means you do not have to punish, right? And so at that point in time, it did not really make much sense to the Jews and to the people at that time. So for about 1,400 years, from the time of Moses to Jesus, this statement did not make much sense. It was a part of that time of ignorance. God has not yet revealed how he will accomplish both his grace and mercy, without compromising his justice and his mercy. But then Jesus, right? Jesus, he came in the flesh. And God poured his wrath upon the perfect, innocent sacrifice in order to what? In order that he might forgive sin and and so that also he may punish sin at the same time. Forgive sin and punish sin. At the same time, he forgave our sin and he punished our sin in Jesus on the cross. So those, those who believe in Jesus is forgiven and justified in the eyes of God, their sin fully paid for by the blood of their Savior. So God has finally revealed himself fully, completely in Jesus Christ. And so the time of ignorance is over. The time of ignorance is over, And he now commands everyone all over the world to repent, to turn away from their idols, from their idolatry, from their delusion of godhood. And you know, something else was actually revealed here. Did you notice that? The mystery that has been hidden for ages past has now been revealed here in Jesus. It is that the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, that they are co-heirs with the Jews of eternal life. Gentiles, you and I, we're non-Jews, right? We are now co-heirs with Christ, with the Jews of eternal life. That is wonderful news. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere, Jews and Gentiles alike, to repent and believe in the one true God, Jesus, his Christ. Verse 31 says, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God has dealt with sin, with the sin of those who believe in Jesus Christ. But those who did not believe, he will also deal with their sin He will by no means clear the guilty, as he said here. So a day of judgment will come. And the ultimate judge will be Jesus, the one who died and was raised back to life. Now, it's either you believe in him who was punished in your place, or you believe in yourself and you will be be punished fully for your sins. So you get to choose. Oh, and I hope and pray that you choose Jesus. Now, in conclusion, if you, are, if you are a believer, be encouraged with these truths. God is your creator. But he is more than just your creator. He is your recreator. He is creating you into a new creation, holy and blameless before him. And you will one day have a perfect and glorified body, free from suffering and pain and sorrow and grief, free from sin. It's going to be glorious. And not only is he your creator, but he is also your sovereign Lord who does not treat you as a servant or a slave. He treats you as a child of God, valuable to him, a treasure to him. He he treats you as an inheritance. And you will be also inheriting, you know, what Christ will inherit. You will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. He is also the covenant lover of your soul. He is your faithful husband, and you are his beloved and pure and beautiful bride. So stop searching for your value uh, from, uh, for, from things or from people. Start looking for your value and worth and your identity, looking, looking to him alone, looking to Christ. He is also your sustainer. So do not be discouraged, but find rest in him. He will sustain you in this life and in the life to come. Now, in a few minutes after this sermon, um, we will have communion. And basically, the communion is a remembrance of what God in Christ has done for us. He has made himself known to the ignorant. He died in our place to save the ignorant, the rebellious, the idolatrous. And our eating of the bread and our drinking of the wine, or in our case, the juice, represents his flesh and his blood that sustains us that gives us life even life everlasting and lastly he is your father you are no longer mere children of god by virtue of him creating you you are actually now the redeemed children of god through christ so you are you are not merely born of the flesh but you are now born of the spirit you know god and he knows you intimately you are his and and, and, and God is yours forever through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The unknown God has made himself known to you. Now, if anyone here is not sure whether they know this God that we are speaking of, come talk to me after the service or talk to one of the elders or the Christian that brought you here. And we'd love to tell you more about this God who delights in revealing himself to you. Now, let's end by saying a prayer to this God, okay? Let's pray.